You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So we have um, the part, right, this week's Parsha begins with Vayakel Moshe Koladat Bnei Israel. So Moshe does this verb, right, which presumably is some ver- some notion of assembly or congregation. Koladat uh, Bnei Israel. So one of the puzzles that one has all throughout Chumash is the difference between, or is there a difference between the verb, uh, sorry, the, the noun Kahal, or the, it is a noun, right, the Shorish Kahal, and Adat, um, right, and that's a mystery we're not going to solve tonight. Uh, after Moshe, also what's Koladat as opposed to Adat, um, then he, right, after Vayakel them, he's Vayomer Alehem, right, this is always a question when you have uh, two verbs, Vayakel, Vayomer, whatever, right, whenever, is the Vayomer part of the same thing, or is it sequential actions, right, is it Moshe gathered them to say to them, or Moshe gathered them and then he said to them, and then he tells them about Shabbos, okay, there are some mysteries in terms of the, uh, the way in which the way in which he talks about uh, Shabbos, he says Elohadvarim, but it's only about Shabbos. Why does he here? He says Los Devaru Eish. So this is the place where fire is mentioned specifically. Uh, aside from the Midrash Halacha question of what's the point of um, of mentioning fire specifically if there are thirty nine Melachot, we have the question: Why is it here that he mentions it? Again, not a mystery we're going to solve tonight. Um, then an issue that we do get to is right. So that's the end of a. There's a paragraph break in the Chumash, uh, a partial break, and the reason for that is that after it says the Yomer Elohim, it says the Yomer Moshe Koladat B'nai Yisrael Lemor. Then Moshe speaks again to Kol B'nai Yisrael. We're not going to solve the problem that there's no Lemor up here, and there are two Lemors in this section. Um, right, that's also a mystery we won't solve. Um, up here it was Elohad Varem. Right now Moshe speaks to them again. He says Zehadavar. So why is the first thing plural talking about? Uh, Talking about Shabbos, the next thing, which actually seems to be plural, uh, because it talks about bringing the materials to the Mishkan and constructing them, and constructing the Mishkan is singular. Right? All those are mysteries we can't solve tonight. What matters to us is that the question of uh, why does Moshe have to be Machil? Right? Normally, it just says that a Shalom Moshe more, and then Moshe says it's been Israel at some point. Why do we need to know that um, that Moshe, all right, that Moshe Rabbeinu gathered them together? Why does it have to be the Koladat? Why does Moshe Rabbeinu break it into paragraphs? Um, and what is right? And then we talk about the contents. So the first paragraph is Shabbos, and we're not going to deal with the specifics of Shabbos. The second paragraph is bringing the material for the Mishkan and the um, and the the uh, the construction of the Mishkan. Um, and then we have Vayetzu, right? So in case you you thought, um, well, we should now ask the question. So so it could be that Moshe spoke this part, Shabbos, and then he stopped speaking, and then he started speaking again, and he talked all about the Mishkan, and then we get the Yitzu, they're once again called up in Israel, Milifnei Moshe. So everybody leaves, Milifnei uh, Moshe. So the first question is, so when Moshe finishes speaking there in the rest of Chumash, if he's finishes speaking, we don't bother saying everybody else leaves. Uh, we also have to figure out what Milifnei Moshe means. Um, is there any significance to the um, right to the prepositional phrase milifne? Um, okay, then right there seems to be a deliberate connection to vayitzu, and then vayavu. Right, they leave and they come. Um, and we have a description of everybody coming, and in the description of everybody coming, I want to point out a few things. Right, so um, so it says vayavu, vayitzu is called das Israel. When it comes to yavu, it's pixelated. 
right? Not everybody, right? It's not just describing a vocal called Aspen Israel, they brought everything. Here we have a whole list of groups. We have Kol Isha Shernas Olibo, everybody whose heart lifted them up, the Kol Ashernas Varu Chowuto, and everybody whose spirit lifted them. Um, now you could read this as by these people came and these people brought, right? Hey, these people brought the Trumat Hashem, or you could view it as and Heviu, but it's a little grammatically off. So it might be best to separate these groups as doing different things. One of them is one of them, their hearts lifted up, and one of them is their, their uh, generosity is inspired. Uh, then we have this very odd phrase, uh, which we're going to assume means that the men and women come together. We have a new phrase, kol nidiv libo, that's parallel to nadvarucho, they bring things. Um, and then more ish and more ish, right? These are all about substances. And we get off the substances, and all of a sudden we have the women coming, and they do things, right? They, sp- right? they spin, um, and they bring things that are spun. And then there are more women, asher nasali, uh, right? Asher nasali ban, but, right? That's parallel to, uh, that's parallel to kol isha, kol isha olibo. So you could break a new paragraph up here and say that this is all about Kol Ish, and now we have the Chol Hanashim. That doesn't work so well because we've got Hanashim Al Hanashim. So that's a little bit um, that's a little bit odd. Uh, then the Nasim come, right? They come late. Everybody knows, right? Why is the Nasim last as opposed to at the beginning? And then we have once again Kol Ish Isha Asherna Davli Bamotam. So there seems to be an emphasis throughout this section that both men and women are coming. Um, right in the end, it's Heviu, B'nai Yisrael, never call a dot again, Nidavala Hashem. And then Moshe speaks to B'nai Yisrael and he says, See, Hashem is called uh, B'tal ben Reb which is uh, parallel to when Hashem first tells Moshe about B'tal, he says, Re'e Karati B'shem. Moshe says, It's literally Re'u Karahashem B'shem B'tal ben Reb Yudah. Okay, so those are, right, here's our, here our structural elements, right? We have Moshe brings everyone together. He says it seems two different things to them. Um, everybody leaves. They come, men and women, uh, they leave together, but they come separately. Um, and it's, there's a great emphasis that when they come again, both genders are present. And then Moshe tells them specifically about this Ha'el ben Huri ben Uri ben Yudah. Sorry, ben Uri ben Huri ben Yudah, right, that he's appointed as the architect. Okay. That's the structure of our local uh, of our local section. Okay, now I want to talk about two. Uh, I want to talk about two broad uh, methodological uh, methodological questions. Um, the first uh, first methodological question I want to talk about is what I call the difference between interpretation and a textual hook. Um, so here's I guess here's the broad way of framing it. Um, there's a difference between the way you read and the way in which you convey your reading to somebody else. And this to me, I think, is one of the common misunderstandings of Midrash. There isn't really a model in uh, in, in much rabbinic literature, in early rabbinic literature, certainly, for the interpretational essay. Right? We're, we're trained in schools now that if you want to say, like, you want to ask yourself, like, what does this chapter of King Lear mean? You write, what does this poem mean? You write an essay in which you marshal all the evidence together, and then you write, and then you write it out as a single argument. But um, that's, in, that's a, I would say, a fundamentally written way of conveying 
of conveying the material. Midrash is still an oral tradition. And so the way in which they conveyed their interpretations often was by finding one thing in the text to, to convey that interpretation, uh, what I call hook, right? And that doesn't even, and that hook doesn't have necessarily even have to be what a, a compelling argument, it just has to be a memorable way of conveying their interpretation. And the way you judge a Midrashic interpretation is not by, oh, was this specific text where they hooked it on, is that convincing? What you have to do is look back at the text and say, oh, is this a good reading of the text? Right? So I always want to distinguish between the hook of the Midrash and the reading of the Midrash, because the reading does not depend on the hook. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about is a tool that has gotten very popular uh, in the past, I guess, uh, with 30 years since I... 30-something years since I first learned it, and really it, uh, it's only been popular about 35 years, and this is a, a structuralist tool called the chiasm. Uh, the chiasm is a structure of the form ABBA, right? It's an inverse structure where a text um, introduces a certain a certain number of elements in order, and then it um, and then it re it reverses the order either by having the middle the fulcrum thing can be can uh, can be mirrored, or it can be, or, or it can just be a fulcrum. Like it can be one, two, three, two, one, or it can be one, two, two, one. Um, this is a tool. There was a a, a, um, a Dutch uh, minister scholar named J. P. Fackelman who showed uh, brilliantly in uh, in the story of the Tower of Babel how it's absolutely amazing way of reading Dal Babel, and then he proceeded to find the same structure everywhere in Tanakh, and it's much less convincing outside Dal Babel, and it is a very powerful tool. It's very popular now in the, you know, in what I guess the what we call the Gush school, the literary, literary methodology of understanding Tanakh, even from a religious perspective. But you have to be very careful about it, because a text can always be put together in many, many structures. You're always selecting out elements, right? You can say, you know, the text has many words, and you're saying A, B. Well, there's it could be there's a, that there's A, and in between A and B, there are five sukkim. Um, so I want to take a look at a chiastic structure, but I want to caution you, A, a chiastic structure doesn't have to explain everything in the text, but it also is very easy to create chiastic structures by by cherry-picking. So I want to look at a particular kind of chiastic structure in our text and um, and see whether it convinces you. Okay, what I'm going to do, which I don't usually do, is I'm actually going to read um, read together with you uh, the Parsha essay I wrote about this in 2013 and try and explain it as I go through it, and then we'll see how much further we can get uh, than I got in 2013. Okay, right. So it begins by we said so far, right? It, the parsha begins with um, with Vayakel uh, Moshe, congregated, transitive, and then he speaks again to the entire Edav and Israel. The first time Shabbos and the second time Mishkan, and then they leave. So it seems to me, right? Here's the questions we have to ask. First of all, anybody should ask, right? That it says Vayakel Moshe. What is it that compels Moshe to gather everyone together? A, and B, what is it that compels the text to tell us that Moshe gathered everyone together? There, might, there must be some point about there being an assembly here as opposed to just introducing it by saying, right? Why do we have the introduction of, who's, of who is there? Okay, now, what I think is a rabbinic reader, a question the rabbinic reader would ask, and everyone should ask, but I think this is the kind of question that you're much more likely to find um, in somebody who has a religious sensibility about the text, is it says Vayakel Moshe, 
it doesn't say Vayomer Hashem El Moshe Hakel Et Am. So, is the decision to bring everyone together is that Moshe's decision, or is that God's decision? Right, and that's one of the tensions all through rabbinic literature. When is Moshe simply acting at God's instruction? And one of the cool things because I'll do is they talk about the times when Moshe did things either without God's instruction or in opposition to what right to God's instruction. He adds an extra day right before the before Matan Torah, right? So whatever Moshe does something in this context, so from a Chazalic perspective, which I think is you know, a powerful literary perspective here, uh, we always ask ourselves, what is Moshe doing on his own, in, perhaps in response to something that God did? And what is what is Moshe doing because God told him to? Okay, right? And I say that if you're a rabbinic reader, you're going to at least explore the position that Moshe does this on his own and not because God instructed him. And either he does it because it's the he intuits that this is the way to fulfill God's instruction, or he does it because this is a way of, in a sense, preventing God from doing something that he thinks uh, God hadn't ought to do. And then you get the whole theological question, right? Why does why why is the the relationship between God and Moshe portrayed as if Moshe has influence? How you how you handle that theologically? Okay, then I think any reader has to ask, um, right? Why does Moshe talk to them about the about Shabbos? There doesn't seem to be anything does anything about Shabbos going on. He mentioned Shabbos in Esaras Adibros, but What's going on now is the Mishkan. So why does Moshe begin talking about Shabbos? Uh, two, right, why do we have this paragraph break, Vayomer, Vayomer? Right, we have lots of places all through Chumash where Moshe just gives one long, what appears to be grab bag of instructions. So why do we bother separating them here by saying by saying Moshe did it twice? And number three, I asked the question, like, when is this happening? Because we know that the instructions for the Mishkan were given in Truma and Tzavah. And we know, right, we've been here past weeks, we know that there's a whole difficulty trying to figure out what is the relationship between the building of the Mishkan and the golden calf. Was it ordered before? It's built afterwards, but was it ordered before or not? Uh, I, right, why is it repeated? Why is it the Mishkan repeated? Why do we have two separate, two partial groupings about the construction of the Mishkan? So this, Vayakel Moshe, when does it happen in the context of the overall narrative? Okay. So my answer, right, for the sort of structural answer to the first two questions, which is, why does Moshe feel compelled to compelled to assemble people, and why why does he talk about Shabbos, is that instructions about Shabbos are the topic of the last paragraph Hashem tells Moshe to say to Bnei Yisrael before he gives him the first tablets. Okay, so we'll go take a look at the next pasuk and the next page, and we'll see. Um, right, so the the um, the last thing that that Hashem says to Moshe before he gives him the luchot, that's in Paraglamid Aleph, right? We're now in Paraglamid Hey, is a long speech. a long speech about Shabbos. Right? All these psukim are about Shabbos, and right after, right, and right after you get this whole long speech about Shabbos, then Hashem gives Moshe the luchot. Okay, right. So. It's, on, right on that assumption that Shabbos is the last thing that happens before the Luchot. So what we have here is a, um, I guess, it, is a resumptive repetition. We're picking up where we left off now, but things have happened in between. Namely, what happened in between is the Egel Zahav. So my argument is that the reason Moshe begins with Shabbat here is he does what he was supposed to do. Right, God, the last thing God tells him before the given Luchot is tell them about Shabbos. And so now Moshe goes on and tells him about Shabbos as if all these parshot didn't happen. Okay, I'm assuming they have happened. 
um, right? Because that this leads directly into the construction of the Mishkan and the timing is real. So the Mishkan is built now. And so we're after the golden calf. But what Moshe does here is he, right? He uh, parenthesizes everything in between. The last thing God told him before giving him the first Luchot was Shabbos. And then there's whole long conversations that's all around the ego. Now Moshe brings everyone together. And that's, I think it's very important that he brings everyone together because he's making a point. He's making a point that we can put the whole Egel Hazahav thing behind us. It's going to be as if the Egel never happened. But I'll have to see whether that's the whole story or whether that's only part of the story. Okay. So it can't be that the Egel really never happened, right? Because we just said that the Moshe doesn't, but but his the language of Vayakhel itself is right is a recollection of the Egel Hazahav episode because if we take a look, at the way the Egel Hazahav begins, so the Egel Hazahav begins with um, here. The people see that Moshe is delaying. So this is the first. Right, this is the, the the first congregation immediately after that congregation, the congregation that, without Moshe leading it. Right, so this is. Vayikahel means it's the leaderless group that, right, it's the mob that gathers around Aharon. So Moshe's response is, right, and I think that there's an implicit criticism of Aharon. Aharon, right, the people see, and then, the right, instead of Aharon leading them, right, Aharon could have said, Moshe's late, you know what, we're all going to get together and say Tehillim for the next 40 days until Moshe comes down. And that would have given the people a constructive outlet for their, um, a constructive outlet for their uh, right for their concerns, but um, instead Aaron allowed them to gather. So Moshe says, "Okay, right. So this is on the one hand, we're going to say the eagle never happened, but one of the things we're going to do is to act as if the right the way in which we could have prevented the eagle." Moshe exercises his leadership. So there's both a kapara, right? You gathered for the eagle. Now we're we're going to atone for it by gathering for uh, right, gathering for an opposition, uh, right? And there's clearly a sense in which the the um, the Mishkan is the atonement and opposition for the ego, but then we have to figure out, but the Mishkan was also commanded beforehand. But also, the, if you're going to go on as if the ego never happened, so we can say, look, the ego happened because Aaron didn't exercise preemptive, um, right, uh, forget what the word is, um, proactive, proactive leadership. So Moshe is going to exercise pre- proactive leadership. Okay, so that's one, right? So we have this tension. On the one hand, the ego never happened. And on the other hand, we know full well the eagle happened, and we're going and we're going to fix it. Okay, what else? Um, okay. So right, so now we're asking right. So now we said okay. So Moshe talks about Moshe talks about Shabbos now because Shabbos was the last thing God God said to him. But why was Shabbos the last thing God said to Moshe before giving him the luchot? And assumingly, right, Shabbos. Moshe talks about Shabbos and the Mishkan because there is some kind of connection between Shabbos and the Mishkan. So here is my solution. Uh, we can connect Shabbos to the Mishkan both ways. Uh, even though God doesn't talk to Moshe about the Mishkan before giving him the Luchot back there, but we can talk to him by saying that the connection was supposed to be that the first thing Moshe was supposed to do when he came down with the Luchot was to build the Mishkan. Right, that's what that's what right because he's carrying he's carrying tablets. What are you supposed to do with tablets? He's not going to carry them around himself the whole time. So the first thing he does, he comes down with the tablets. They're going to build a storage place for the tablets. So God talks about 
Shabbos to Moshe just before he's supposed to build the Mishkan, and that built, gives us the same connection here as between Shabbos and the Mishkan. So that's a right. So in one sense, they're in the same order because the Mishkan was there. The order of the way it was supposed to be. Moshe was supposed to be told about Shabbos and then build the Mishkan. But in fact, the Mishkan never happened. And if we right and before Moshe built the Mishkan, he was told about the Mishkan. So there's an inversion, which is that Moshe is told about the Mishkan and then he's told about Shabbos. And he comes to Bnei Israel and he tells them about Shabbos and he tells them about the Mishkan. But there is an underlying connection. Okay, so now from a Lavik perspective, the fact that Shabbos and Mishkan are connected raises the question, so what happens when Shabbos and the Mishkan come into conflict? Um, so, right, do we say that the Mishkan overrides Shabbos or that Shabbos overrides the Mishkan? Uh, the way Halacha ends up, we have this fascinating claim that they're both true. That you can't build the Mishkan on Shabbos, but once the Mishkan is built, all the avoda, all the service of the Mishkan overrides Shabbos. So that feels like it's paradoxical, right? So what's the connection between Mishkan and Shabbos? The connection between Mishkan and Shabbos is that sometimes Shabbos overrides the Mishkan, and sometimes the Mishkan overrides Shabbos. So we could look for the textual hooks, and when we right after we're done, we'll take a look and see how some of Rashi and the Achronim try to explain this, um, and say, you know what, there's, there's a way of interpreting this pasuk that makes it clear that this is talking about the building of the Mishkan, and there's a way of interpreting this pasuk that makes it clear it's talking about the avod of the Mishkan. But as opposed to looking for hooks, let's see if we can come up with a big thematic claim that uh, that explains it. So here's my theory. Okay, my theory is that first of all, um, first of all, you um, right, we all know that the um, that the Mishkan is a symbol of the world, right? It's a it's a microcosm. And there are lots of ways to uh, lots of ways to make that clear. But the easiest ways is right is that uh, right, but we say right we, we say every Friday night right by, right that God is um, is chal the malacha, um, and the and in the Mishkan we have mehavi and right. So I didn't bring those uh, those psukim to here, but the language of vayichal and the language of malacha are appear they're concentrated in. The sections, my friend Rabbi Akin again, I think you know, had a very you know, numerical, a quantitative argument showing you that the words, the words Vayichal and Malacha show up in the Parshiot of creation and the Mishkan at a ratio way, way beyond the where they, wherever else they do in Chumash. So it's pretty clear that the Mishkan represents the world, and therefore the building of the Mishkan represents right, represents creation. Okay. But then we can look at it and say, you know what? There are two creation stories. There are really three, at least, maybe more. But let's talk about the two standard, under, the understanding, the standard way of, simplest way of reading Bereshit that everyone knows about, which is that there are two creation stories. There's the one that takes up Perak Aleph and the first three Pesukim Perak Bet. And then there's the one that goes on from there. And the difference between the two stories is that um, in one of, among the differences between the two stories, right, which, and I'm not talking about right, what, how we view them, whether you're supposed to merge the narratives or not, they're literally, they're two different stories. The first story, begin, right, everything is created exactly as it's supposed, as it's supposed to, and everything happens, and it ends in Shabbos. Right, so the first story ends on, ends, right, God rests and ends on Shabbos. The second story, um, the second story ends with Adam Rishon being kicked out of Gan Eden. Right, Adam, Adam sins, and um, Adam and Chava sin, and they get thrown out of Gan Eden. Now, the way 
in which Chazal integrate the stories is that the second story happens on Erev Shabbos, and Adam and Chava are kicked out of Gan Eden just before Shabbos. And that ties into the Rashi ways of quoting, right? The quoting, right? That the the first chapter of Bereshis is what would was God's plan. It's the way God wanted to create the world. It's with Midah Adin, um, and therefore there's no sin, so it can survive even in a world of absolute Midah Adin. Um, but the real world never gets to Shabbos, right? Perik. The second story, which which is symbolic of the world that is actually created, where Din and Rachim are mixed. That one never gets to Shabbos. So we have two stories of creation, one of which gets to Shabbos and one of which doesn't get to Shabbos. And the one of which gets to Shabbos is the one in which nobody ever sins. And the one which doesn't get to Shabbos is the world in which there's sin. So now we have two orders for the construction of the Mishkan. One order for the construction of the Mishkan happens before the, before the sin of the golden calf. And the other order for the construction of the Mishkan takes place after the construction of the sin of the golden calf. So it seems to me that the way in which we can put all this together is by saying that the, um, here's, here's how I wrote it. The Mishkan is originally commanded, right, before the sin of the golden calf, symbolizes the world as it's presented in the first creation narrative. Right? Because that's, right, in that world before the golden calf happens, basically, history is supposed to end. Uh, right, it's supposed to, and you're supposed to end up when Moshe comes down from the mountain. He's supposed to come down into Shabbos, which means that he's supposed to come down, and everyone's supposed to be back, back into being in Gan Eden. And so, what the Mishkan represents is that we are back in Gan Eden. Right? The Mishkan represent, right, represents, right, Mishkan represents God's presence in the world. Okay, so now um, that world ends up, right, that world um, actually gets to Shabbos. So there has to be a way in which the, in which the Mishkan represents a world where it's always, where it's always Shabbos. Um, and then, the, right, after the golden calf, right, that's after the sins, now the Mishkan represents the second creation story. So now the first creation story ends with Shabbos. So the Mishkan has to recognize Shabbos. Right, if you're building the Mishkan, and the Mishkan is the first is the is the first creation story. So just like the world is built in six days and you rest on the seventh, so if you're rebuilding the Mishkan, if building rebuilding the Mishkan is reenacting the first chapter of Bereshit, so then you can't build the Mishkan on Shabbos. But that's the right. That's the um, that's the that's the first story. But the second story never gets to Shabbos, and the Mishkan now is right is representing the world of, of the second chapter. You never get to Shabbos. Right? Why? Because you now have a responsibility um, to keep building the world. So the, the Mishkan can't stop for Shabbos because that would suggest that we already got there and we haven't, right? We're in Perak Benabrashis where we never get to Shabbos. And that's part of the, the symbolism of the symbolism of the Mishkan. Even though it's the same Mishkan, the symbolism radically changes because it used to be originally the Mishkan is supposed to represent Gan Eden. And then afterwards, the Mishkan changes and it represents the doorway to Gan Eden. But the Kruvim, right, the, just like the Kruvim guard the path to Gan Eden, the Kruvim guard the, right, the Mishkan has at its, as, as heart, has the Kruvim, and there's the null space uh, behind the Aron, which is where Gan Eden is, that, you know, right, that we never uh, we never actually get to, right? So that's my, my overall thesis, is that it's not a paradox, it's that 
the relationship between Shabbos and the Mishkan changes uh, because of the Chet Egel. The last thing God tells um, Moshe before the right before the first story of the Mishkan is Shabbos, because that's how the Mishkan is supposed what the Mishkan is supposed to be. Moshe is supposed to go down and build the Mishkan, which is supposed to bring the world to Shabbos. Um, when you finish the Mishkan, then it's Shabbos, right? So you finish the Mishkan, you stop working on Friday, and then just like the world is complete, the Mishkan is complete, but then they sin. So now the Mishkan's purpose changes, so it's necessary to tell them that the avoda of the Mishkan takes place on Shabbos. Okay, so now here I set up, or here's a chaotic structure. Chaotic structure is, uh, earlier Moshe is told about the Mishkan, then he is, uh, right, then he is told about Shabbos, then the people see something, what do the people see, right? So we look, right, we said the, that the, the sin begins with, so let's, let's actually take a look at this. That's all right. Let's take a look at the part, right? So the, the sin of the Chet Egel begins with, um, ah, so I'm going the wrong way. Sin of the Chet Egel begins over here. Everybody sees that Moshe is being late, right? Now this is, the, the use of the visual is, um, is, is interesting because they don't actually see anything. What they see is that they don't see Moshe. But the the beginning of the sin is described as vayar, and then how does this, how does the the whole episode of the sin end? The episode of the sin ends with right right. This is right before before our story. People do see Moshe. Okay, right. So the so the the head of the eagle is bracketed. It begins because they don't see Moshe. They see that Moshe is delayed, and it ends that they do see Moshe. And in fact, they see that Moshe's face is shining, so they see that Moshe has been with God the whole time. They didn't have to, um, I guess they didn't have to worry. Um, okay. So our structure, right, we can say this for the beautiful gastric structure, is that there's the Mishkan. The Mishkan is supposed to lead to, uh, supposed to lead to Shabbos, but then they see something. Now, seeing is very beautiful because the whole hate of in Ganadin begins with a visual, with a visual thing also, right, that they that um, Chava sees the tree and the tree is attractive. So they sin through seeing. The resolution, uh, the resolution is that they see uh, that they see Moshe, and that brings them back to right to the change about Manishkan, right? So that's a caustic structure that shows everything uh, we've done. But the truth is that that's leaving out many feature many features of the story. Um, right? It leaves out um, right? we can introduce another factor, which is that after they see that Moshe is um, after that Moshe is delayed, so they right so then um, they ask their their wives and daughters for the jewelry, uh, for their wives and jewelry, and then um, after the, the Mishkan here, right? So we have lots of right. We have we emphasize again that the um, the women are involved. But if we take a look at the narrative, you see the women are involved, but the women don't bring their own gold. The women only do the work. So we have a, a parallel here either, right? The sin of the, the that the sin of the Egel begins by asking women for the jewelry, and then right Chazal famously say, and the women said no, so the men have to bring their own jewelry. Um, and we look at the Mishkan, right? So there's emphasis that the and I shouldn't say why there should be women, sorry, this that's a typo. Um it just goes out of its way, right? Just um to to not emphasize marriage. Um so this is also a beautiful parallel, but it breaks the chiasm, right? Because now we have a, B, C, D, C, B, A, D. Right? It's not chiastic anymore either, so you have to have complicated uh, structures. Also, within this seeing, it turns out that we could look at it in a different way. As opposed to B'nai Israel 
not seeing Moshe than seeing Moshe. There's a second not seeing, uh, not seeing, not seeing and seeing in here, which is um, that Moshe asks in the in the midst of, of praying for Bnei Israel and the Chet Ego, Moshe asks to see God, and God says, "You can't see me, right? You can't, right? You can't see my face." So what does God do? God says, "All right, I'll put my uh, right." I'll put my palm over you. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll put my palm over you and you won't see my face, but you'll see, right, you'll see my back. Now, then, the parallel is that when Moshe comes back to Bnei Yisrael, they also can't see his face except when he's talking to them, right? Moshe, and they don't see, right, they don't see Moshe's back. Moshe veils himself so that veil seems to be parallel to God putting his calf over him. Um, so it seems that there is a way in which um, the way in which Moshe relates to God becomes the way in which Bnei Yisrael relate, relate to Moshe, but with subtle shifts, because Bnei Yisrael do get to see the face of Moshe, but only when he's when he's speaking to them. So let's figure out what that, how that ties into the whole um, idea of seeing and not seeing, as seeing the cause of sin, as seeing the the uh, the correction of sin, um, and that also has to be tied in uh, tied in structurally. Okay. So that's my uh, that's my overarching structure. I would love to right here's things I would love to do is I would really love to find a way to say that um, right since we if this whole structure is correct then the significance of gender well gender plays a very significant role in sin uh, in Parak Bereshit. So it would be very nice to uh, right. So Chazal of course immediately pick up. That the um, that the women's refusal to p- contribute to the cheta, right, to the cheta egel um, is a kapara for Chava in some way being responsible for Adam's um, right for Adam for Adam sinagadeden, and so I'd really love to take a closer look at all the uh, psukim that describe what the women do after right in this rebuilding of the Mishkan. And the relationships between men and women, the rebuilding of the Mishkan, and to find a way to uh, make that it be a direct atonement for the um, right for for the sin of the second of the second uh, chapter of Bereshis. Um It is you know there 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 are pegs that are very attractive here that uh, you know the women are constantly described as wise, right? Isha uh, right? So it would be right and. It would really be beautiful if I could find a way to connect this to the um, Rav Henkin idea that I love, Rav Henkin's Livracha, that the the cause of this original sin was that Adam didn't share what God had told him with Chava, so she didn't know what, what God actually commanded, and he he right, he added the stricture that you shouldn't touch the tree, and that's why, and that's how the snake was able to uh, uh, right to trick her into um, into eating it into eating it herself. So I would love to find a way to make. That to build that into the structure here. I have not yet succeeded in doing that. Uh, so that'll leave that as uh, as that for, as uh, something that um, you can that you can um, all do yourselves. Um, okay. So that I think is the. Uh, so I have a couple other things I want I want to say about this this structure, and then I want to stop and see if you have um, other reactions or contributions as to how to. Uh, how to make meaning about this? So I want to point out another um, another couple of connections. So in the in the in this story, our of our parsha. So we have again Vayichal Moshe Midaberitam. So Moshe 
stop speaking with them. So we talked about earlier that part of the connection between the Mishkan and creation is the word Vayichal, that we have Vayichulu in Barishis, which is right, which is Shabbos. And when the Mishkan is actually constructed in Pekudei, so I want to point out that 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 Vayichal actually shows up twice within this narrative when Moshe finishes speaking with them. Right, look at this phrase Vayichal Moshe Beritam. Right, Moshe finished um, speaking Itam, which is a very odd phrase. Vayichal Moshe Mida Beritam, right, as opposed to Lida Beritam. This also requires investigation. Um, so if we go back to the story of right, what remember, I claim that this that this um, Sorry, the Mechal Moshe Beritam. This is the right. This is the last thing that happens uh, before we get to our parsha. Right, Moshe finishes speaking with him, and then we um, and that Vayichal Moshe, I think, is an, is an inclusio. Right, it connects back to the last thing that happens before the uh, before the giving of the um, before the giving of the Luchot. Right, which is Vayitena Moshe Kichaloto Daberito. Right, so you have Kichaloto Daberito. That's the last thing. That God says to Moshe before he before he sends him down with the, with the first tablets, and the last thing Moshe does now is Vayichal Moshe b'Deberitam. So that I think strengthens my idea that what's supposed to happen at the beginning of our parsha is going back to that moment uh, when um, right when Moshe, uh, the first thing that Moshe is supposed to do when he came down from the Luchot uh, that these two that this finishes that unit and we go back to where it was um, where it was before. Uh, we also have this Vietza, uh, right? When Moshe comes back to Hashem, then he leaves Vietza. So we talked about how, um, because of the Israel not seeing Moshe, is parallel to Moshe not seeing God. So the story that happens before Aparsha is Moshe finishes something, and then, right, uh, right then, Moshe goes before God and he leaves. So Moshe goes before God and he leaves, and guess what? Right, the next thing that I think the way Aparsha begins is people. Uh, right, Moshe gathers everyone together, and then they leave. So the reaction, the way that people relate to Moshe, is parallel to the way that Moshe relates to God. Right, is that that, that might be why it's necessary to say um, the yetsa. Um Okay, uh, other things I wanted to connect. Um, uh, okay, so that right, that I think is all, all the structural elements that I had in um, in this week's parsha. Wanted to show you quickly uh, how um, how the acronym got to this, which is much more of a textual hook, and also watch the way in which they um, in which the textual hook slides into much more of a reading. So Rashi says, right, So Moshe told him about Shabbos here before the Melech Mishkan to tell you to tell you that the construction of the Mishkan. Does not uh, push aside uh, Shabbat. This is Chachamim, one of the, cla- the classic commentaries in Rashi, but they're really an anthology, mostly, says, hang on a sec, why do we have to write, why do we know that there's some kind of a lachi connection? Because Shabbos here is unnecessary. Moshe told him about Shabbos previously. But now he says, hang on a sec, maybe the reason it's telling you here is not to tell you that you can't build a Mishkan on Shabbos. Maybe it's here to tell you that you can build a Mishkan on Shabbos. Uh, right, so he says, okay, maybe Rashi's right, and be- because Shabbos comes first here, that tells you that Shabbos has priority. Um, but then he, he points out something really interesting, although he doesn't make the same meaning with He says, you know what, it's important that Shabbos comes first here, because when God told it to Moshe, 
It's the other way around. God first told Moshe about, about the Mishkan, that's Parshas Truma and Tzitzave, and then he tells about Shabbos and Kisisa. So why doesn't Moshe tell B'nai Yisrael the way that God told Moshe? Why doesn't Moshe reverse the order? So the answer, it must be that Moshe has halachic purpose. So that's a really, right? That doesn't seem like a very convincing answer. The way God told Moshe is probably, is supposedly, presumably the way the halacha is supposed to go. So the, right, picks up that Rashi's answer that we know that Shabbos pushes, that, that, that Shabbos trumps the Mishkan because Shabbos comes first is a really good answer if we just look at this section. But if we look at the whole story, it's not a good answer at all because in the overall story, the Mishkan comes before Shabbos. We need a fancier story. Um, Right, we need a fancier uh, story. So the Menachem Sion, this is a Hasidic interpretation, I believe, has a, a much cooler way, attempt to account for the story. He says, Everybody leaves. The question he asks, and this is something that we, if we have time, we can spend a lot more time on, who cares that the people leave, right? We asked that question, right? We know why Moshe has to gather the people, but why does it have to say that, Moshe, that the people leave? So I gave you one answer, is because it shows you that the people relate to Moshe the same way they relate to God, and we'll see interpretations that build that idea. But he has another, I think, very cool answer. He says, V'od, and now he says very completely upending Rashi, he says, besof. It should have talked about Shabbos, about Shabbos after the Mishkan, because it's obvious that if I tell you about the Mishkan, and then I tell you about Shabbos, what I mean to say is, look, I told you about the Mishkan, but don't do it on Shabbos. This order, he thinks, is problematic because people, this order, as opposed to Rashi, who says it tells you about Shabbos first to tell you that Shabbos has priority, he says, no, 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 no. Actually, if I wanted to tell you that Shabbos has priority, I should tell it to you last. So here's his answer. In the Venerial Tarets, it seems to me to explain. That Moshe was a very wise man and he knew that Bnei Yisrael are exceedingly generous. Um, right, and of course, your Shalman talks about how wonderful the Jews are. Therefore, Moshe was worried that if he, if the first thing he, the first thing he did was make the appeal, everybody should bring stuff for the Mishkan. Then nobody's going to wait until he's done. As soon as Moshe says we need stuff to build the Mishkan, everybody's going to leave, and nobody's ever going to hear about Shabbos because by the time he gets to talk about Shabbos, everyone's going to be gone. So therefore, Moshe has to tell them about Shabbos before the Mishkan because he won't be able to hold his audience. So now that doesn't really solve the problem of how people are supposed to know which one comes first. Um, but it's a beautiful reading of a couple of things about the story. One is, it explains, right, the, right if we go back to the text, it explains the, um, the structure here, right, with the, the consecutive verbs, which are fun. Um, they leave and they come. So, right, so it sounds like these are, it sounds like they're leaving is really, is really very brief. Uh, so as we'll see, many people understand as meaning they left and returned immediately. So he says, aha, you see that they left as soon as Moshe, as, as soon as Moshe talked about the, uh, talked about the appeal. So therefore, right, so therefore they, uh, right, they must have, um, they, they would have left before Shabbos. They would have left uh, before, before Shabbos, uh, as well, and that's why we get to, um, yeah, that's why that's, we, we, that's, that's why it has to happen that way. And I'm also, what happened to my word, Vayichal? Uh, okay. But, but there isn't, right, 
and also right, right. He also picks up here right that um, that uh, the people leave, but unlike right. So in the previous section, right, the very immediate, right, the immediate, the very immediate, the very parsha before this parsha, right. So what happens, um, right? So let's take a look here again, right. The very parsha before this, what happens is, um, hold on. Um, Moshe Moshe finishes speaking with them. Um, sorry, Moshe finished. Right, Moshe, Moshe finishes speaking, but here, um, Moshe never finishes speaking with them. Right in our parsha, in our parsha, all that happens is that Moshe, right, Moshe speaks and they leave. So this is a beautiful reading where he says that tells you they left, and they would have left even if Moshe had never finished speaking. Uh, right, so that's his that's that's uh, his connection, and therefore he says, right, you can't, as opposed to Rashi who says that you learn here. Because Shabbos comes first, that Shabbos pushes aside the Mishkan because whoever comes first has priority. He says, "No, you can't learn that." But we can figure out why Moshe had to do it that way because, and Moshe had to tell them that Shabbos is more important than the Mishkan uh, before he actually told them about the Mishkan because that would have um, otherwise they would have left without um, without uh, without hearing the laws of the Mishkan. Okay, uh, so I'm going to stop here for a, for a moment and uh, ask if anybody has. Um, anything to um, to add about the connection, about the structure I built, and particularly if you have a way of connecting the construction of the Mishkan and, and women's role in the connection of the Mishkan, do you see a, a really good way of connecting that to the the connection of the stories to the two creation stories? Okay, that we can have people. We can have you think about it and uh, get back to me during the week. At least I, I gave you a moment to think about to put it back to yourselves together. Okay, so we only have uh, ten minutes left, so I'm going to try to um, just do do um, one little thing and see if we can um, press press will pick it up uh, at um, at some in some other pressure because we'll see that this little thing connects to lots of other pressures. Uh, so actually, um, I had actually begun preparing a. Um, Preparing a different shirt um, this week, but it didn't seem to me like it was what I really wanted to say. Um, when I and then I found this old shirt which I thought I really did want to say, but I think they connect in a, in ways that we'll now see. I will get to a little bit of what I had of what I had originally thought the shirt would be. So the end of our the end of, of the opening pasuks of our opening section says the Bnei Israel left Milifne Moshe. So a lot of commentaries try and figure out right what does Milifne Moshe mean? Why does it have to say Vayitzu Milifne Moshe? Um, and there are a couple of, right, so we talked about why does it have to say Vayitzu at all? And they also pick up on, right, what is Milifne Moshe? They should have said Vayitzu Me'im Moshe for me together with Moshe. What does the word Milifne mean? So you put all those together. So here are a couple of interpretations. So the Orachayim says Milifne Moshe Perish Milifanav Kudem Shitain Lahem Rishus Lamodifanav, right? So they left, and this is what the interpretation we just saw the Menachem Tzion pick up on. They left before Moshe gave them permission to leave. Now he says, hang on a sec. Is this praise of Bnei Israel or criticism? Right? We learn in Yoma, he says, that students aren't supposed to leave until the teacher tells them that they can. Right? It's impolite to leave your teacher's presence without permission, unless, of course, the bell rings. Um, it's an ongoing fight always in school, right? Is, are you, is the class dismissed when the teacher says, or only when the bell rings, and it's really unfair to the students when the 
when the teacher keeps teaching after the bell rings because they're late to the next class, but it's impolite. And of course, the teacher you know, wants to finish what they're saying. Right? Grave tension as to when a class actually ends. Um, okay, so B'nai Yisrael, right? So, B'nai, so he says B'nai Yisrael decided for themselves that when Moshe said, bring Truma, that meant go leave now. So they realized that it was an implicit message. As soon as I finish this paragraph, you should leave. What? But maybe they would have done it, right? But he says, right, this is what the Maybe they were so enthusiastic that they would that they left without permission because they were so excited about this mitzvah. Uh, okay, then he has a third interpretation, which I think is just fun. He says, Odnira, another possibility. They were afraid that Moshe said, you all, get, you all bring Truma, but he was going to actually go donate everything himself. So they had to leave before Moshe could donate everything himself. That's why they left. Uh, and he says, means they left preemptively. Right? So Moshe doesn't mean from, in, from Moshe's presence. It means they left in order to get ahead of Moshe. So that's a really fascinating um, claim. And one of the things you have to look at, though, in in uh, interpretation of this parsha, is that this is one of those parshios that lends themselves naturally to appeals. Right, Moshe's appeal to the Mishnah is enormously successful. So whenever somebody gives a drasha on this parsha, which says, "And you know what? When the Israel were given an opportunity to contribute to the Mishkan Shul Yeshiva, whatever it may be." You didn't even have to finish the sentence. Before you were done, it all went out and they got their checkbooks and came back in and handed everybody everything. So you have to be a little suspicious about whether that's really the compelling interpretation uh, interpretation or not. Um, but I think the first two interpretations of the Rechaim, the third is just an extreme version. The first two, right, the question is, does is Milifne a gesture of respect? And it tells you that the people really behave with Moshe properly, parallel to the way in which presumably Moshe behaved with God? Or was it a gesture of disrespect that they left, even though they were right, they should have wait, waited to be dismissed from his presence, and there's no vayichal. I think that's a fundamental tension, which um, then we could try and figure out how does that tension, which of those things fits better in the narrative, the Israel waiting for Moshe or not waiting for Moshe. Okay, the Nitziv doubles down on the highly respectful version, and he says, Bilifnei means, Mashma'o, it means that they backed out. And Israel, right? That, that not only, Israel didn't just leave; they left, but they left in a way that continued acknowledging his presence. Uh, right? He says, "So why does the Torah have to tell you here?" So he tells you because it says, "Ordinarily, ordinarily, when Moshe is speaking to people, he thinks." Right? And this he's basing this on the um, on the way in which the Ramam describes this in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah. That ordinarily, when Moshe when it says, "Vaydeber Hashem Moshe Lemor." It really means that Moshe is talking to his students who would then go out and repeat it. But here, when Moshe goes out of his way to collect the entire Adat B'nai Yisrael, um, right, that you might think that when you're talking to the whole community, they don't behave in the same respectful fashion as his close students do. So it tells you that they maintained the teacher-student, teacher-disciple decorum, uh, even right, even when it was the entire um, congregation. Okay, you can see if that's uh, convincing to you or not. So that that's what milifne uh, means. Um, the Alshech has um, has right. The Alshech then points out that maybe the point of it is to say that 
right? As we as I, I know that we were reading that by they leave as one unit, but they come back in groups. Um, now I pointed out that the group that the way they come back in groups is that they're divided by gender, whereas they're not divided by gen uh, by gender when he's talking to them. And I'd be interested in knowing if somebody could make an argument saying that Kol Adat B'nai Yisrael is uh, always emphasizes that it's a co-ed group. I haven't done the work to um, to suggest that. And then the the Al Sheikh talks about his his theory of appeals that there are some people who, uh, who who give immediately and some people who have to overcome their have to overcome the Yisrael not to give. And so that's how they divided the groups. There were the people who came immediately and then the people who took a little time to uh, to decide. Um, whereas um, the Siste Kohed has an even cooler interpretation where he says that um, B'nai Israel left early. Why? Because they knew that Moshe was about to make the appeal, and they thought that if Mo- that if they wait, they waited to hear the appeal, then they would then they would get less reward because it would imply that they were just responding to being asked. So they all left immediately before Moshe could actually make the appeal. Um, okay, let's see how we got you know extreme version. Um, but the, he quotes the Ramban, who says it a, a little differently. Right, he says that we're talking about the the um, that the, they divide into the groups of people who do the work, and the groups of the people who bring the stuff, and that I think is much more uh, much more connected to the um, the gender thing. Um, the Tumat Onach has what I think is a um, I guess what I want to point out that there are. Two conflicting schools, right? There's always going to be the school that that says that emphasizes Vayitzu as a gesture, as a gesture of respect. That was a deceiv. The Tumat Onach says that they leave as a group, but they come back in. They come back hierarchically, and people are waiting for the people ahead of them. I say I don't find that terribly, um, terribly um, convincing. The um, the then there are other Hasidic interpretations that go out of their way to say that Bnei Israel are in fact treating. Um, treating uh, Moshe as God, and that's why it's in Vayitzay Melifnei. But there are um, they have opposite interpretations, right? Some say Vayitzay Melifnei because uh, right, one one interpretation says they leave Melifnei Moshe, but they never really leave Moshe because Moshe's presence is always with them. And the others say that no, they left Moshe. Normally, they would never have been willing to leave Moshe, but they're willing to leave Moshe because he's telling them that we're building a Mishkan, and they're willing to leave Moshe because when they leave Moshe, they're going towards God. Okay, right. So you can find those interpretations, um, right, uh, as compelling um, as you as you want. They get to very extreme, uh, extreme interpretations of right in Chassidus, where the Rebbe in fact stands in the place, uh, very much in the place of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, so the last thing I want to just do is methodologically, and we won't do that this week, but maybe we'll do it some other parsha. Is that we ask the question, what does it mean to be a semilifne? So we saw all these interpretations locally. Right, and try and figure what is does it fit better in the story of today's Israel are respectful or overeager. Um and the right, so we should really connect it to all the other Vayetzay Milifnes. And so I gave you uh, lots a whole set of other psukim that are Vayetzay Milifnes. The starting is Kain. Vayetzay Kain Milifne Hashem. Um right, so we already have an image but the first time we have a Vayetzay Milifne, it's um it's Mifne God. And it's not a pleasant one, right, Kayan? Right. So that, right. So the way in which the interpretation is split about what Kayan is doing, whether Kayan leaves exalted because he was forgiven, or um, right, or or depressed, uh, or uh, right, seeking away, right. All those interpretations will then have to play out um, here. So we have a whole, right. The other milifnes you have in Chumash. So there's Kayan, 
Um, there is, um, there is, um, sorry, that's right, those are all about Kayan. There's Avram talking about burying Sarah, Milifanav. But probably the next the next best parallel is, is Yosef, and over there you'll see there is the same split. Is that a gesture of respect or a gesture of disrespect that he leaves Milifanav? Does that mean he backs out, right? That's That's the precedent for Nesiv, or does it mean that when he leaves, right, he really carries all of Paro's authority with him, right? So, the, right, so all those will have to play out which interpretation, um, which interpretation you play here should really play out uh, with all your interpretations there. Okay, so summing up for the week, a uh, big idea is that the Mishkan changes meaning, um, that the Mishkan was originally supposed to be the Mishkan always represents the world, and the, the construction of the Mishkan was originally supposed to represent the um, completion of the world, and God is supposed to come down, and we're supposed to live in Shabbos forever. But um, the the chapter one of Bereshit never right never actually happens, and the Egel Azahav plays the role of the sin in Gan Eden, and but we still have a Mishkan, but the Mishkan we have now represents not the right not the presence of God, but actually in a sense the absence of God because. Got right because you have to get past the Kruvim now. You have to go all the way through the Mishkan to get to Gan Eden. Uh, I argue that that actually plays out halachically, in that uh, you, right, the construction of the Mishkan has to recognize Shabbat because the constru- right, because the um, that's representing Perak Aleph of the Brachit, but the work of the Mishkan is supposed to um, represent Perak Bet, so it has to go on because we never actually uh, we actually never actually get to Shabbat. That the emphasis on gender is in some ways supposed to tie into the way in right, the way in which the refusal of the women to contribute to the Egel is seen as an undoing of uh, of of Chava's inciting, in some sense, the sin in Perak Aleph, and the women's participation in the Mishkan is supposed to represent an undoing of that. But I don't know exactly how to do that. Um, it helps if you tie in the way in which Moshe does or does not replace the. Um, take the role of God and the way Moshe relates to God, the way B'nai Israel relates to Moshe thereafter. But there are differences. Those differences are related to seeing. Um, and it could be that much of the the way in which to interpret this is going to depend on the way in which you understand uh, B'nai, Israel's, B'nai Israel's leaving the presence of Moshe. That will affect the way in which you relate the, you understand the relationship between Moshe and God in B'nai Israel's mind. Um, okay. That's, the, uh, that's what I had to say for this week. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.